Have you ever just wanted to quit? I mean, just give up, walk away, and let it be somebody else's problem. Every Monday morning at 8 o'clock, maybe, right? <laughs> I think looking back over my life, um, more often than not, I've probably been too stubborn to quit. I hadn't had enough sense to know when to quit. But I have quit a few things. In fact, I actually have quit a job before. Have you ever quit a job? I have quit a job. Years ago, I guess when I was, gosh, 19 before Amy and I ever met, I worked at a, a local Sears franchise, selling TVs and washing machines and craftsmen, lawn tractors and all that kind of thing. And I worked for, and this is not over-exaggeration, but I, I worked for the worst human being who has ever walked the face of this planet. And his name was Todd, and Todd looked like Rush Limbaugh. He talked like Howard Stern, and he always ate bean sprout sandwiches for lunch. So he always kind of smelled like potting soil. It was just bad, all right? And, and Todd's affectionate nickname for me, and I was, I was a lot heavier then than I am now, but his affectionate nickname for me was Lumpy. Or lump, if he was in a great mood. But, as terrible as he was to me, it really wasn't me. He was just terrible to everybody. Just really was a horrible, horrible person. Well, uh, one particular Saturday, I was scheduled to preach that night after I got off work at a youth revival. I used to be young enough to preach at youth revivals. And on this particular night, I was going to preach at, at a youth revival. And during my lunch break, I had my Bible, and I was reading through what I was going to preach about that night and looking over my sermon while I had my lunch. Well, later in the workday, Todd found my Bible, and he thought it would be a, a, a funny joke to print off pornographic images, put them in my Bible, so that when I got up to preach that night, I would open my Bible, and they would just fall out, and everybody in the church would have a good laugh. Now, thankfully... What Todd didn't know is that that was not the Bible I was going to preach from that night. But he did print off the pictures and put them in the Bible. And when I found out what he had done and I found those pictures, I said, Listen, man, Johnny Paycheck was right. You can take this job and you could just have it. And, and, and I quit. And it was kind of great to quit. But quitting sometimes can be exhilarating. And it can be liberating, just to let it be somebody else's problem. But quitting can also be humiliating, can't it? When you have to withdraw from a class because you know you're just not going to pass, no matter how hard you work. Or when like, your bathroom is, is knee-deep in water and you have to tag out and call the plumber because you know <laughs> that you're not going to get it fixed. Quitting can be liberating, but it can also be humiliating because it makes us feel like we're inadequate. Or it makes us feel like we're not good enough, or we're not smart enough, or... We're somehow inferior. But tonight, I'm going to show you that it's only when we finally give up on ourselves that we are finally able to pray. It's only when we finally give up on ourselves that we are finally able to pray. And I want to show you this from Luke chapter 18 and verse number 9. So if you have your Bible, turn there with me tonight to Luke chapter 18 and verse number 9. Uh, one of my favorite Favorite stories in all of the Bible, a parable from Jesus about prayer. And I'm so excited about looking through this with you tonight, but man, I am fighting this pollen or something. And 
It's a killer. But we're going to carry on anyway. Luke 18, 9. It's hard to preach when you can't breathe. I found that out over the years. Luke 18, 9 says, He also told this parable. And every, every word in this is important. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, in Luke chapter 18, the Lord Jesus gives us two awesome little parables about prayer. We looked at the first one a couple of weeks ago in the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. And in that parable, you find this lady who is aggravated and frustrated, but who has all of the rabid stubbornness of a bulldog who continually brings her case to a judge saying, you give me what I deserve. And in that parable, Jesus is making the simple point that prayer is just faith that is too stubborn to quit. That's all prayer is. It is faith that is too stubborn to quit. But Jesus in that parable ties our understanding of prayer to the doctrine of election. And he says, really, how much more should those of us who know that we are beloved children of God pray? How much more stubborn should we be knowing that God is not a distant, uncaring judge, but God is a loving Heavenly Father? We should be that stubborn when we pray. Here in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is going to dive even deeper into prayer. And here he's going to connect prayer to the doctrine of justification, a point that I'm going to come back to here in just a few moments later. When he gives us, though, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And this story, it does a lot. I mean, it does a whole lot in just a few simple sentences. This is a prayer, or a parable rather, about the blinding power of self-righteousness. This is a story that is about humility. It's a story about the mercy of God. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of salvation. This story is, is so uh, deeply personal that in my imagination I can see this story playing out in contemporary terms in any church in America on any given Sunday. A self-righteous, smug, religious person walks in and takes their place in their seat with all the reasons accumulated in their mind as to why God owes them all the blessings they are after. But in the back row, somebody comes in locked in guilt and locked in shame. So awkward and uncomfortable in church that they can't even lift up their eyes to the screen to sing the lyrics of the hymn. But in their heart during that service, they call out to God for mercy in Christ. And God hears and God answers. But this is also a story about prayer a story about the kind of prayers that God hears and the kind of prayers that God ignores. 
And so we have a lesson brought forward here about the nature of our standing before God as justified sinners. And what it means to pray out of our understanding of that. And the story begins here by teaching us about a man turned inward. That's where you have to begin. It's by talking about a man turned inward. Now, this is a parable about two men going up to pray. But what Jesus does, as he so often does in his parables, is he pulls the hearers into the story. He gives them compelling characters and he gives them an interesting setting just so that at the right moment he can pull the rug out from under everybody, twist everything around and make the point he wants to make, which he'll do in verses 13 and 14. And Jesus does this because he has a specific target in mind with this parable. And we're introduced to his target in verse number 9 when he says, when we're told that Jesus is teaching to those who trust in themselves that they are righteous and who treat other people with contempt. Now here, Jesus is talking to self-righteous people. In our day, self-reliance, self-confidence, self-esteem, those things are the enshrined virtues of our age, aren't they? We're taught to believe in ourselves, to trust in ourselves, to follow our heart, to believe that we are sufficient and enough. But that's not a new belief. That's not a new That's not a new system of thinking or a way of looking at the world or a way of thinking about ourselves. That is as old as humanity itself. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and tried to cover up their shame and their nakedness with the fig leaves of their own making, humanity have been trying to figure out some way to cover up their shame. We've been trying to make ourselves look better than we are. And we can do that by putting on a suit and tie and coming into a church on Sunday morning, or we can do it by the six-figure income that we earn in our job on Mondays. But the truth is, we're looking for some way to prove that our righteousness and our goodness is up to us to produce. We want to believe that our goodness is inherent and our righteousness is innate. And to prove that, what do we do? Well, we treat other people like garbage, which is what Jesus has in mind in this passage of Scripture. We treat other people with contempt because we see other people as the stepping stone that we have to climb on to make ourselves look better than everybody else. And isn't it fascinating how here the Bible tells us that those two things go hand in hand. That self-righteousness and treating other people with contempt always go hand in hand. thought about it this week. You know, I've never had a drunk yell at me. Never. Never had a drunk yell at me. Never, never in my whole life had a homosexual lie to me. Ever. But I've had good Baptists do both of those things to me in this building. Isn't that interesting? Self-righteousness, treating people with contempt, go hand in hand. Why is that? Why is it that religious people can be so nasty? I mean, we all know it's true. It ain't like y'all ain't ever met a Baptist. Why is it that religious people can be so nasty? Because religious people, if they're trying to produce their own righteousness, they always have to be on the lookout for somebody to be better than They always have to keep their eye out for somebody to judge so they can prove how much more superior they are. And so this man has that attitude in Jesus' story. The Pharisee, the made-up symbol of all these self-righteous people who goes into the temple to pray. And really his prayer is not much of a prayer. I mean, it would have been impressive to everybody who would have heard it. But it's not really much of a prayer. All he really does is he rolls out his impressive resume to God. And he has an impressive resume. He's a Pharisee, he's a culture warrior, 
who is defending Judaism and the God of Judaism and the traditions of Judaism against encroachment from all of outside pagan influences. He believes the Bible. As a Pharisee, he would have had to believe the Bible. He's a moral man. He's a good man. He believes in prayer. He's at the temple praying. He's joined together with the people of God at the place of worship. He stands off by himself. But when he stands off by himself, he's not doing that so he can find a quiet moment of solitude to just uh, enter into the presence of God by himself. He's standing off by himself to communicate to everybody else, I'm too good to pray with y'all. And so what he's doing in separating himself from everybody else is he's making himself the center of attention. So everybody sees the holy and the pious man lifting his eyes and his head towards heaven, lifting his hands toward heaven to begin his prayer. And his prayer begins this way, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. But what a blessing that is. Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like everybody else here at church today. I'm glad that I'm so much better. And then he begins to identify himself. He says, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Not even like this guy over here, this tax collector. Lord, I fast twice a week. Fasted twice a week. Brothers and sisters, some of us haven't fasted twice our whole life. Lord, I give tithes off of all that I possess. Lord, every potato that grows in the garden. Lord, you get one out of ten. They're all yours. He rolls out his resume. Isn't God so lucky to have him on his side? If we could translate this into Alabama in 2022, I can just hear him praying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. Thank you that I'm not like the Methodists or the Presbyterians or the Democrats or the homosexuals. Lord, you know that I've been chairman of the deacons for 15 years. And Lord, you know that my family donated the money to purchase the stained glass windows that we dedicated to the memory of Mamaw, who was faithful to this church for 50 years. And Lord, you know that I've never slept with anybody but my own husband. And on and on the credentials go. And now, God, here's why you have to bless me based upon all that I am and all that I've done. Lord, I don't cuss too much. I don't watch any R-rated movies. And yet when Jesus tells the story, he says that the prayer swells up in his heart. It floats out on his tongue. It comes down to the ears of all the people who would have heard it and would have given an admirable and a respectful nod. And then it lands on the, the tile floors of the temple and it never goes any further. But there was another man praying in the temple that day and God heard him. And so while you see this, this man who is turned inward, Looking at himself, Jesus says the other man offers up a prayer that is turned outward. And this isn't much of a prayer either. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What kind of prayer is that? He doesn't come to God and say, God, here are all the reasons you've got to hear me. What kind of prayer is this? He doesn't come to God and, and give him his detailed bullet point resume of, Everything he's accomplished? What, what kind of prayer is this? What, what kind of prayer? I mean, he, he doesn't even have the common courtesy to look up and look God in the face when he talks to him. Just comes and hits himself in the chest in a sign of grief. What kind of prayer is this? It's the kind of prayer that God hears. God have mercy upon me, a sinner. And this is where Jesus pulls the rug out from under everybody who hears him. Because as soon as Jesus starts the story, everybody knew that the Pharisee was the good guy. They just knew that. 
They knew the Pharisee was the person that deserved God's blessing. It's like when you watch wrestling now and you know who to cheer for automatically. You just know who the good guy is. Or, or when you watch a movie, the guy standing in the shadows with the greasy hair smoking a cigarette, you know that guy's the bad guy. And everybody who heard Jesus, they knew the Pharisee was the good guy and they knew the tax collector was the bad guy. I mean, you don't even have the cultural baggage these people did 2,000 years ago. And you know if he's a tax collector, he has to be the bad guy. Because he's a tax collector. He can't be the good guy. And yet here, when the tax collector prays, God answers him. Why does God answer him when he prays? Because his prayer looked outward. He does not do what the Pharisee did when he prayed. Did you see what the Pharisee did? The Pharisee went to God in prayer and all he talked about was himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I tithe. I fast twice a week. I am not an extortioner. I am not unjust. I am not an adulterer. This man's not praying. He's broadcasting his own religious goodness to anybody that will hear it. But when this publican prays, when the tax collector prays, he doesn't have any achievements to pray about. He doesn't have any accomplishments to offer. All he can do is come before the God of heaven that he sinned against, pull out his pockets and say, God, I've got nothing. And God, because I've got nothing, I depend totally upon your mercy because I am a sinner. When he scrapes the bottom of his heart and he realizes there's nothing good there, he says, God, I'm nothing but a sinner who deserves punishment. But God, I look to you to give me mercy. And Jesus says when he prayed that, when he looked outside of himself to a God who gives mercy, God justified him and he went to his house righteous. And so really the difference between the Pharisee and the publican is that the Pharisee, bless his heart, he had no idea what he really was. For all he talked about himself, the Pharisee had no idea what he was. This publican, he knew exactly what he was. And he was a sinner. And he was broken and he's grieving and he's sin. And he just comes to God and he says, God help. Because I have nothing good and I cannot give you anything at all. And what does God do when a sinner comes to him humbly and honestly like that? He answers. And Jesus says, this is why this passage is so incredible, verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This is where Jesus, for as far as I can tell, the only time in his ministry, specifically and deliberately teaches about the doctrine of justification. Now, when you read in the Pauline epistles, the doctrine of justification is thick. It's all Paul ever wrote about. But here Jesus specifically, explicitly, deliberately says that God justified this man. What does it mean to justify him? It means that God declared him righteous. God said, that sinner who can't even look at me in his guilt, that sinner who looks inside of himself and finds nothing good to give me, that man is righteous. Even though, even though he declares himself a sinner, God declares him righteous. Even though he cannot present any goodness, God declared him righteous. And folks, this is the good news of the gospel. It's why Paul says in Romans 5.1 that we are justified by faith. And being justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. That he did not want a righteousness of his own making, but the righteousness which comes from Christ through faith. Folks, at the very heart of this whole story, 
is the issue of identity, right? Who are we? Who do we perceive ourselves to be? And how do we relate to other people on the basis of who we believe ourselves to be? One man comes to God and he presents his case. Lord, I'm not, I'm not bad at all. I'm all good. And Lord, here's why. Here's the proof. The other owns his identity and says, I'm a sinner. And when he does that, he receives a new identity. God says, you are righteous. How can God declare him righteous when he's not righteous? How can God possibly declare him righteous? He's not righteous. Wouldn't God declare somebody righteous who is righteous? Wouldn't God declare somebody who righteous who can say, Lord, I fast twice a week. That seems righteous to me. Lord, I give tithes of all that I possess. Surely that's righteous. Lord, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not unjust. I'm not an extortioner. Lord, I believe your word. I try to treat people the way your law says. That's righteous. Wouldn't God declare that righteous? What in the world is happening in this passage of Scripture? Jesus has got all this wrong. Because our minds work exactly like the Pharisees' mind, right? That God declares righteous what is righteous. Here's what Jesus says. He says God declares sinners righteous. And when the God who declares things that are not as though they are, those things are, and those things come to be. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. In other words, when God speaks, when God speaks, things come into being. When God speaks, things come into being. So that when God speaks to nothing and says, let there be light, and there was light. When God speaks to a sinner wrapped up in their guilt and their shame like this publican in the temple. And he says, you are righteous. In that moment, if the creator God of all heaven says that sinner is righteous, that sinner is made a new creature in Christ. And that sinner is righteous for good and forever. In other words, if the Lord Jesus is able to speak to a dead man. And he did this three times. If he's able to speak to a corpse and that corpse listens and that corpse gets up and lives. If the word of our God is able to create life where there is death, then the word of our God is able to declare righteous what is sinful. Now, let me say this. I didn't intend on saying this, but I saw it come up on Facebook, and it does come up from time to time in the life of the church, and it's a good place to to drill this down. Somebody asked the question I saw on Facebook. Somebody connected with our church, and I hope they're watching online right now. Whether or not it was the case that once a person is saved, are they always saved? Do we believe in the eternal security of the believer? Is there any chance at all that I could ever lose my salvation? And the Bible's answer to the question of am I saved forever for good is an emphatic, resounding yes. Absolutely. You bet. Why? Because the God who has declared me righteous is never going to declare me unrighteous. He's already spoken. He's already said it. It's done and it's settled forever and for good. And it cannot change any more than God can change. It cannot be undone. It cannot be taken back. God declared this man righteous. In spite of his sins, God declared him righteous. In spite of all of his guilt, God declared him righteous. In spite of his failures, God declared him righteous. He's righteous. Period. It's over. It's settled And it's done so that he receives an entirely new identity. Now, here's why this is good news. 
But that wasn't good enough. Here's why this is good news. It means that his sin did not have the last word before God who declared him righteous. And thank God it also means that the Pharisees' good works did not have the last word for him before God who declares sinners righteous. That means that before the throne of God right now, the last word about me is not how sinful I have been or how good I have been, but the last word about me before God right now is my righteous Savior who suffered and died in my place and gives me all that he's earned and all that he deserves. So that God looks at me. God looks at me. When I look outside of myself and I say, God, I have scraped the bottom of my life. And my best is trash. And my worst is worse. So, Lord, I look to you for mercy. Every sinner that does that will be in that moment declared righteous forever by the God of heaven. Now, with that settled, I can get to the message tonight. Because after you deal with this man who's turned inward and the prayer that's turned outward, you can get to the lesson that's put forward. This is in verse 14. One man left the temple, (laughs) left the temple freshly minted as something that he wasn't when he went. The other guy just went home. A good man is lost and a bad man is saved. And Jesus uses all of this teaching on mercy and justification to drive home this point in verse 14. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That is the lesson about prayer. This is a parable about prayer. That is stuck to the end of another parable about prayer. Because prayer is always taking the posture of a justified sinner. It is always a giving up on ourselves. Giving up on our strength. Giving up on our wisdom giving up on our ability, giving up on our understanding, just the way the publican in the temple did that day. True prayer is always looking outside of ourselves and looking to God. And I think maybe this is the reason that if we look back over our walk with the Lord, so many of us feel like we've only ever prayed just a handful of times. You know what I mean? Now, I've prayed several times today. Here, just in church, before I came to church, this afternoon. But you know what I mean when I say that, right? And I feel like I've only ever really prayed a few times. I think maybe the reason is because we only ever really come to the end of ourselves completely a few times. We only ever get to the place where we totally despair of any hope in ourselves and look completely to God alone in faith. That only happens to us a few times, doesn't it? But folks, that's what true prayer is. It only happens a few times, though, because it's so foreign to us, so unnatural, so uncomfortable. Our default position is to pray and to think like this Pharisee, to come to God and present our case and to present our argument and to think that God responds on the basis of of what we offer Instead of realizing that God wants us to come the way this tax collector did. God, I have nothing. And if you do it, God, you have to, if it gets done, God, you have to do it. I have nothing. And so no matter how far we walk with the Lord, and no matter how mature we get in our faith, 
Folks, we always pray as this sinner prayed in the, in, the, in the temple. It's not that these words are the only words we ever pray. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But this posture is the only true praying posture. This is the only way to pray. To look away from myself completely and say, God, I need you. God, it has to be you. Otherwise, we're not praying. We're doing like the Pharisee and we're just talking to ourselves. This is why, and this is an important point, folks. This is why the Bible here, specifically in Luke 18, connects justification to prayer. Jesus could have told this story any way he wanted to. It's his story. It's his Bible. He could have said whatever he wanted. But when he makes this point about a sinner being declared righteous, he does it by talking about a sinner praying. Now, the Bible says explicitly that we are justified by faith. And this is a point that Baptists need to hear in the South, and we need to hear regularly. We are not saved by prayer. We are saved by faith in Christ. And we need to hear that because a lot of us have gotten confused and we think that saying a prayer in an altar is what saves us. Jesus is what saves us. And we are united with Christ by faith alone. But the Bible says this, Romans 10, 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then it says this in verse 14. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear unless somebody preaches? What's the point? The point is in Romans 10, what Jesus does in Luke 18 here, Luke, Luke 18 here, that true faith prays. Faith cries out. Faith, faith hollers like a baby. Faith squalls. Like this sinner does here. He looks away from himself, so all he can say is to somebody else, help. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And when we pray in this kind of humble praying, in faith, God answers. When we quit on ourselves. Now that's the hard part. That's the hard part about faith. The hard part about faith is not trusting God. The hard part about faith is not trusting in you. Because we think we're so trustworthy and so reliable. Just like the Pharisee in the temple. But the Bible tells us over and over again that this is what it means to pray. To look beyond our resources. To look beyond our riches. To look beyond our abilities. To just totally ditch our self-confidence. And to come asking God for everything. That is why Jesus so often in teaching on prayer. And I hope you've seen this over the past few months. That's why Jesus repeatedly tells us to pray like children coming to a father. Come with nothing and ask for everything. Pray like a persistent widow who has nothing but boldness. Come boldly, the writer of Hebrews says. Come boldly to the throne of grace. So that you can find grace in your time of need. Those are the prayers that God hears. The prayers where we're not trying to solve everything and fix everything, but the prayers where we give up. The prayers where we quit. Because when we quit, then we can trust. When we trust, then we can pray. And when we pray, God answers. Now, tonight, as we begin praying together, I thought this passage from Proverbs 28 would be fitting to go with this story from Luke 18. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Do you have any sins you need to confess tonight? I'm not asking you like I would ask you for.